Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Meadowview Weekly Sermon Podcast. We're a church who seeks to grow in Christ, gather in community, and go in obedience to the Great Commission. We're kind of coming in on the end here of Galatians, and basically just to kind of catch you up, Paul's been writing to a, a group of churches in Galatia who are fighting false teaching. False teaching. And uh, what is happening is these people are kind of moving in and saying, look, yeah, Christ did this work, but also you need to do this for your salvation. And so what Paul is saying is, look, there is no other gospel. That's why we're calling it no other gospel. There is no other gospel. Jesus Christ has paid it all. And so uh, surrendering your life to him is all that you need to do. And so Paul's kind of addressing this. And so as we get into chapter 5, as we did last week, he gets to this part of application. And so he's kind of laid out his case of why Christ is enough. And now what do you do with that? And so what we said last week, if you remember, is free people fight. If you are free, you are free indeed. And if you're going to remain free, then you're going to have to fight for that freedom. We know as a nation that freedom does not come cheap, right? Our, our nation is built on the fight for freedom. And even now, as you turn on the, the news or if you turn on the, uh, the radio and they're talking about what's happening uh, across the world here, you see that there's a fight for freedom. And uh, it, it costs us much to do that. So it costs Christ much to give us freedom. And so we remain in that freedom, and we fight for that freedom. And what he's going to say today is, is if we fight for freedom, free people fight, and free people grow as they fight. If you want to see spiritual growth in your life, then you're going to see it as you fight, as you wrestle with the flesh. And so as we read last week, let me just kind of fill you in in Galatians 5.1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Free people fight. For freedom, you have been set free. You have been saved not just from something, but also for something. It's a remarkable thought to think that God not just, he didn't just save you from the sin that's in your life, he saved you for freedom in Christ, to live a new life. So you have been set free from yourself to serve others in loving service. And so Paul, as he, as he writes this, he, he gets to this point where he's saying, for freedom, you've been set free. And uh, I'm going to slide behind there. Here we go. Test The test of a Christian and Christian liberty is the ability to move from lawlessness and legalism to a life of faith and love. So as we look at these scriptures and as we pick up in, in verse 16 here in just a minute, Galatians 13 says this, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. What's interesting about this freedom and Paul's writing to the church is that he's writing to, he's writing to a, a gathering of believers. And what he's wanting them to know is that Christian freedom is best expressed in Christian community and it's most attacked in Christian community. Christian freedom, Christian liberty, how we love and serve one another is attacked in the gathering of the community. And so you see that all the time. You see how churches will, will fight, how churches will split. You'll see how there'll be murmuring and disputing among believers. And what is happening is, is there's an attack on Christian freedom and Christian liberty. This is why Paul would say this in Romans 12, 3 through 5. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body... We have many members, and the members do not have all the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Paul writes to churches, and he says, look, don't start thinking 
more highly of yourself than you ought. Don't start thinking that your part of the body is more important than another part of the body. And don't start thinking that your part of the body functions better than another part of the body because we all have different parts of the body and we all need to be functioning together because we're part of one body, right? So he's saying, look, you got to understand that this freedom, this love and service of one another is going to be attacked in Christian community because we're prideful, we're selfish, and there's always going to be this war to go back. So our freedom in Christ is best seen in our relationships with one another. Those who are in Christ have been set free from fear-based behavioral modification or self-based gratification into love-based transformation that expresses itself in Christian community. For many people, the church is about fear-based behavioral modification. And what I mean by that is, if I don't behave a certain way, God's not going to be happy with me. Even worse than that is that you come into a a body of believers in a gathering like this, I better put on a show or people are not going to be pleased with me. I'm not going to be accepted. So there's this fear-based behavioral modification that starts to take place where we all put on these Christian masks and we all act like we've got everything put together because we're afraid that everyone's going to point fingers at us or that God's not going to be happy with us. Or we fully retreat from this and we say, you know what? I'm just going to go back into self-based gratification. I'm just going to do what's right for me. And you find that people leave the church when that happens. Well, you know what? I'm just going to, I, I don't fit in. I'm just going to do what, what's right for me. But what Christ is moving us towards, what freedom we have, is this love-based transformation where he begins to do a work in our hearts. So he says, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. We must fight or stand firm against spiritual drift. The reason we got to stand firm is because we're all drifting. If we're not careful, we've drifted away from God. So I don't, I don't know about you, but I, it's the middle of winter now, and I'm already thinking about the beach, right? You're already thinking about warm weather, and I mean, it's 70 degrees, right? Like, it's not really that bad outside, but there's no beach outside, right? So we want to go to the beach. We want to sit there, and I don't know if you've been to the beach lately, uh, but if you go to the beach and you get out in the water and you begin to play and you begin to ride the waves and before too long, 30 minutes has passed and you look up to check on your, your beach chairs and they're no longer in front of you, they're way down the beach, like 100 yards. You know what I'm talking about? Like you look up and you're like, where's our stuff? You know, and you're like all disoriented. The best is when you have little kids and you're sitting in the chairs and you see them come out of the water and they're like, my parents left me. They were right here, you know, and sometimes they'll just go sit with other people and you're just like, Sorry, (laughs) you know, let me grab them, bring them back over here. The thing is, it's just like the current in the ocean. When you aren't paying attention to to your life, you begin to drift. When you're not paying attention to your spiritual relationship with the Lord, you sense this drift that happens. And so let me give you four currents that take place that cause spiritual drift. You can be aware of these as you begin a new year, a hectic schedule. When you put so many things on your plate... And you are so busy with the day-to-day, you might be too busy to notice the spiritual drift. One day you look up and you say, I've been doing all these things, but I've wandered away from the Lord. Maybe a misplaced heart, you've become too passionate for the wrong thing. Maybe you begin to put all your time and energy and money into something that you just found to be the best thing in your life right now. And one day you look up and you realize, you know what, that thing I put in, I put in place of God. It superseded my love for God and my affection for Him. Maybe an apathetic attitude. You're too disinterested due to too much physical abundance. We have so many things here that 
we go week after week after week. And if we're not careful, we've gone weeks without praying, God, I need you. Because we are providing for our own needs. When I was in Haiti and I was meeting with a pastor down there, Pastor Will John, many of you remember him. He said, if we want something, we have to pray for it. We don't just go buy it. It was just such a different thought process of the spiritual uh, desire to be with the Lord. Like it was always there. And then here's the last one, a parasitic sin. Too much acceptance of sin in one's life. Little sins slowly suck the spiritual life out of you. If you're not careful, these little things that you allow to go on and on and on will eventually suck the spiritual life out of you. And before too long, you've drifted from where God has you. So as I jump into Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 through 26, to the end of the chapter, let me pray for us and let's ask God to reveal himself to us through his word. Father, we come to you. We praise you. We love you. And God, we thank you for your work, the work that you did on the cross and also the work that you do through your spirit. God, as we read about that, produce in us your character. Allow us, Father, to be in humble dependence upon you. God, not, we can't do a thing on our own. So, Father, we ask that you would speak to us this morning. You would reveal yourself. And God, that if you do so, you would move people from death to life. You would move them from lost to saved. Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Galatians chapter 5, starting verse 16. But I say to you, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, Fits of, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is God's Word. The first thing I want you to see this morning is led by the Spirit. The Christian walk is led by the Spirit. So he says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And down there, he says, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So what happens in the life of a believer, and I say a life of believers, that there are two opposing forces at work in the heart of a believer. And this is the Spirit, the Spirit of God. This is the Spirit of God that came and indwelled you and sealed your heart when you confessed and you submitted your life to Jesus Christ. And the other one is the flesh, the old you, the old desire of self-gratification over Christ's glorification. These two are opposing forces with one another. And so I want to I uh, illustrate this. And so I've asked Jonathan and Katie to get me some youth and some kids up here because I want this illustration to just kind of stick in your head, right? Look at them. They're so excited. Such agility and movement. <laughs> so... I don't know about you, but you might remember being a kid and getting to play tug-of-war, right? Tug-of-war, my wife, you know, she was a teacher for all these years, and I think she would recruit uh, kids 
that are more uh, physically able to hold the rope than others. Because, I don't know, sometimes it was more about tug of war at the end of the year than teaching throughout the year. Am I right? Yeah. So, uh, you remember playing tug of war. Now, you're already, you guys are already cheating, which is okay, because it looks like... No, no, okay. Let's get it right here in the middle. All right. So, there's two opposing forces that are pulling against one another, right? So, when I say three... You get to pull, and whichever sock goes this way wins, all right? One, two, three. Oh, look at this. Oh. Now, you see this struggle, right? It's back and forth, back and forth. They're going to do this the entire time I'm preaching. So <laughs> this illustration will just keep going the entire time. Okay. I, oh, this side wins. All right. Give them a, give them a round of applause. Good job, guys. Here's what's, here's what's difficult about this struggle that's happening in the heart of a believer. What makes this battle so difficult is both sides are pulling for freedom. The Spirit is pulling for true freedom. The freedom we have in Jesus Christ to be who He called us to be and to live the life that we couldn't live, that only He could live through us. There's true freedom in that. But there's this flesh side of us that says, no, freedom is being able to do what you want. Freedom is being able to experience what yourself gratifies and desires. So the Spirit is pulling for freedom of Christ, and flesh is pulling for freedom of self. Both of these things are pulling all the time in the heart of a believer. This is why Paul would say in Ephesians, he would say it this way in 4.22 through 24, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul would say, look, there's this new self and this old self, and they are at war with one another. And so in order for you to be pulled and led by the spirit, you're going to have to take off the old self. You're going to have to sacrifice and, and destroy the old self. Otherwise, it's going to always pull against what the spirit wants to do in your life. One direction leads to living a lie and the other leads to living in liberty. The lie of legalism and lawlessness. That's what we talked about last week. There's, there's this lie that you can, you can do the right things and be okay. Behavioral modification. Or the lie of lawlessness. Let's just take off the restraints. Let's live how we want. And let's just self-indulge. They're both a lie. Or there's liberty. The liberty of transforming love. The love of God in the life of a believer transforming you from one degree of glory to the next. Verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Do you see the promise there? You can't be doing both at the same time. Paul says, It is impossible to be pulled towards the flesh and glorify God. Or you can be led by the Spirit and you can glorify God. Those two are opposing forces. You can't be doing both at the same time. Verse 17, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Here's what's so beautiful about a true believer in Christ. A true believer in Christ wants to do what God has called them to do. There's this deep desire. I want to do what God's called me to do. This is why Paul would say he wrestles with this. I want to do what I want to do, but I can't do. You know, and he's like got this whole wrestling match in Romans. He's got this thing going on because there's this inner battle, this inner tug of war, this inner fight. And free people fight. And what are you fighting? You're fighting your flesh. 
You're fighting it. And you don't do it by behavior modification. You do it by surrendering. He says this, there's these desires. The word desires there means over-desire. An overindulgence of something, an over-want of something, these desires. The main problem our heart has is not so much a desire for bad things, but an over-desire for good things. You know why? Because we can see the bad things and say, mm, no, that's not good. I better not do that. God would not be pleased with that. But it's really difficult for us to see an over-desire for the good thing. It's really difficult for us to recognize that this over-desire for what is good can become idolatry in our heart. This is the degree we take the good things and we make them a God thing, or we take a good thing and we pervert it into a sinful thing. It's the idolatry of the heart. We take really good things that God created and we pervert them into sinful things. Or we take really good things and we elevate them and we put them in place of God and we make them God things. It's idolatry. As you read through the Old Testament over and over and over again, you see where Israel fell again into idolatry. They fell again into idolatry. And if you're like me and you're reading the Old Testament, you're like, how, how dumb are these people? Like, it's just, it's just totem poles and golden calves. Like, who would worship a totem pole and a golden calf? Like, that sounds ridiculous, right? Well, if you take the New Testament form of idolatry, the New Testament form of idolatry is, is simply drifting from God toward an over-desired pattern of life where you seek good things and make them God things, and you take good things and you pervert them into sinful things. There is a war for your worship. And the war for your worship happens in the inner tug-of-war, not just how you perform as a believer. There's this inner war that's taking place that's fighting for your worship. Am I going to glorify God, be led by the Spirit, or am I going to be led by the flesh? Am I going to worship the things that I desire, or am I going to worship the things that God desires? There's this inner battle. You've got to fight for your freedom. John chapter 16, 13 through 14 says this about the Spirit. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he desires, whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, and he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit at work in the life of a believer has a purpose to glorify Jesus Christ. And your flesh is fighting it because your flesh wants to glorify yourself. There's always this inner battle. The flesh desires to worship satisfaction of self. And the spirit desires to worship glorification of God. Verse 18. But if you were led by the spirit, you were not under the law. Paul goes right back to this. Hey, it's not about following rules. It's not about behavioral modification. Because it's easier to point out external failures that need to be fixed by behavior modification than it is to point to internal flaws that need to be transformed. It's easy to look at your life and say, you know what? This needs to be cleaned up. This has a blemish on it. If you come to my house, I, I, I like for my house to stay somewhat clean, but it's difficult with teenagers, right? Yeah, you know. Okay, so uh, if you come to my house, and I know you're coming to my house, I will do this really quick clean. And when I do this really quick clean, the house is not really clean, okay? Because I've not taken anything out of the house. I've not really deep cleaned. I've shoved everything in the closets, Right? So you're like, oh, this is nice. Can I see your closet? And like, it just is gonna, it's going to like fall on you, right? So that's how I clean. And my wife is like, you didn't really clean. And I'm like, oh, I did. I vacuumed that spot right there. So, you know, like it looks good when you come in. 
This is what we do. We're like behavioral modification. Someone's going to be watching. Someone's coming over. I better clean everything up. But what I'm going to do is I'm just going to shove everything in closets of my heart. And I'm not really going to deal with anything. I'm just going to make it look good on the outside. How does that please God? How does it please God when we say, yeah, I'm going to hold on to this sin. I'm going to hold on to this feeling. I'm not really going to confess it or or repent of it. I just want everybody to think I'm good. Standing firm in our freedom is more about a heart transformation than behavior modification. It's more about what God wants to do in your heart, so the battle ensues. Jesus says this in Matthew 15, 18 through 19. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. Being led by the Holy Spirit is not about pointing out external actions that need to be worked on, but rather the Spirit points out places in your heart where you refuse to trust God, believe God, and love God more than you love yourself. That's why there's conviction. Because it's not about fear-based, oh, I better look good. It's, God, I know there's areas in my heart that I have not put you on the throne in. I know there's areas in my heart that I I have not surrendered to you. I know there's areas in my heart that I've tucked away in the closets, and I don't want anybody to know that junk's in there. But you know what's there. Being led by the Spirit or being lured by the flesh. Paul goes on. He says in verse 19, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul just gets really blunt here. He says, look, if you're being pulled in this direction of flesh, it's going to be evident. If you're, going to, if you're going to be pulled this way, if you're going to allow your life to drift, if you're going to allow yourself to go in that direction, it's going to be evident. And he says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Spiritual drift comes, becomes evident in areas of over-desire. The over-desire, number one, of sexual desire outside of marriage. He uses three words here, sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. All of these pointing towards sex outside of what God, of what God designed in marriage. Now, what I said was, it's, it's, it's not the bad things that get us. It's the good things that we pervert and make sinful things. And if you, if you look at our world right now, it is obvious, it is evident that the world is living by the flesh. Am I right? And what's the number one way that you, it's obvious they're living by the flesh? Is this sexual indulgence outside of God's covenant marriage. It's this perversion of what it, what it is to be intimate with someone. It's this perversion of action that shouldn't be done outside of marriage. It's evident. It's obvious. I like how Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this. He's talking about the high standard God has on marriage. And he says, marriage is more than your love for each other. Vastly more. Its meaning is infinitely great. I say that with care. The meaning of marriage is the display of the covenant-keeping love between Christ and his people. And there's a fight for it. There's a war over this glory of Christ that's seen in marriage. John and the Well Piper put it this way, the most foundational thing to see from the Bible about marriage is that it is God's doing. And the ultimate thing to see from the Bible about marriage is that it is for God's glory. Those are the two points I have to make. 
Most foundationally, marriage is the doing of God, and ultimately, marriage is the display of God. I want you to understand this. If you are in a marriage covenant relationship, it is to glorify God, not to satisfy your need. And once you begin begin to think that that is to satisfy your selfish need, you're being pulled in the wrong direction. But as long as you're going and being led by the Spirit, not being lured by the flesh, you see your marriage as something that honors and glorifies God and that points to something much bigger than this love relationship that you two have. Am am I right? You guys are super quiet this morning. So I, I think I'm like either scaring you or you're just still thinking about the kids. I don't know what's going on. The second thing, he puts into a section of cultish religion, idolatry and sorcery. It's evident when people begin to look at other things to find power and purpose rather than looking to God. Three, thoughts of the flesh, enmity, strife, and jealousy. Here's what's interesting about this. These are, these are in the mind. When you're, being, when you're being pulled by the flesh, when you're, being, when you're in this drift, there's some things that happen in your mind. Are you ready? You have enmity or ill will towards someone. You're, you're being like, I don't know what it is about them. I don't know if it's their face. I don't know what it is. I just don't like them. You're laughing because you have said that. I don't know what it is. Might be the way they've combed their hair, but I just don't like them. I have ill will towards that person. Wish they'd cut their hair. Strife. It's just bitterness. Strife is bitterness in the heart towards someone else. I don't know what it is about that person. But man, they, they make my skin crawl. Have you ever said that? Just bitter. Maybe they said something or they looked at you the wrong way. Maybe you took something the wrong way. I don't know what it is, but you're holding on to this grudge that shouldn't be there. It's evident that you're being pulled in the wrong direction. Jealousy, a competitive and covetous nature of others. Always competing, always wanting what someone else has. These are all in the mind. It's evident. And if these are in the mind, guess what happens There's the results of the flesh. Fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, divisions, and envy. If you think ill will or hold bitterness in your heart or jealous that someone has something or gets something you think you deserve, don't be surprised when you can't handle your emotions and you blow a gasket on someone. Typically on an innocent party. Am I right? Husbands, I'm just going to pick on you. Okay? Because I'm a husband. I can pick on myself. You ever be upset about something that happened during the day and you come home and you blow up on your wife? Is it because you're holding things in your heart that shouldn't be there? Is it because you're beginning to be pulled in the wrong direction? Because if you are pulled in this direction, you would see your marriage as something that glorifies and honors God. And you would treat your wife like Christ treats the church. Am I right? Thanks. Good. Everyone else was quiet. There you go. All right. Five, addiction, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Basically, a pattern of uncontrolled behavior. I took this from Timothy Keller. Notice that some of the sins are characteristic of religious people. Selfishness, envy, jealousy, factions. While others are more characteristic of non-religious people. Immorality and drunkenness. The list shows that God does not make the kind of distinctions that we, conti- that we commonly do, seeing sexual behavior and uncontrolled addictions as more sinful than jealousy and envy. These are all evident 
of the flesh. He says, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Basically, if there's a pattern of uncontrolled behavior in your life that's unrepentant, this is what he says, Tim Keller says, Paul is referring to habitual practices rather than infrequent and repented of lapses. For someone continually to indulge in, sinful, in the sinful nature without battling against it is to show that the Son has not redeemed them and the Spirit has not renewed them. So, so it's really interesting that Paul is writing this letter to churches. Am I right? So here's what, here's what Paul knows. Paul knows that eventually this letter is going to get read to, a, to an assembly of believers. That, that the, those who have gathered together in Christian community are going to listen to this letter. And he's saying, listen, I've warned you and I'm going to warn you again. That if you live like this and there's no conviction and there's no repentance in your life and you show no evidence of the Holy Spirit, you will not enter eternal life. So, so why would he write that to the church? Because he knows there's people sitting. They didn't have pews, okay? No, there's people sitting wherever they were sitting in the first century, listening to this letter, who don't know Jesus and yet have modified their behavior so that they fit in. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. I mean, how more blunt can he put it? That if your life shows no evidence of repentance, if your life shows no conviction of the Spirit, and you choose to live for the flesh... You, you might not be saved. It doesn't matter if you repeated after me a prayer. It doesn't matter if you walked an aisle. It doesn't matter if you raised a hand. It doesn't matter if you even got baptized when you were a kid. If you did not surrender your whole heart to Jesus Christ, you are not saved. And there's people in the church that have a false sense of security because they've been able to modify their behavior so that they look good. They've cleaned up the house and shoved everything in closets. He would say, live by the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Can I just go back? If you don't know Jesus Christ, I plead with you today. Surrender. If someone has the Spirit in them, if they are a Christian, then fruit will grow. It's evident if you go this way, and it's evident if you go this way. The point of the text is the Holy Spirit of God does the transformation it's not what you do, but what he produces that makes you more like Christ. It's not your conduct that makes you look more like Christ. It's his character being lived in and through you that makes you more like Christ. So this is the character of Christ in you. Let's just run through these real quick. Love, to serve a person for their good intrinsic value, not for what the person brings you. This is what Jesus displayed, Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. We brought nothing to the table, but he loved us. Joy, a delight in God 
for the sheer beauty and worth of who he is. John 15, 11, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. You can't have joy without Jesus. Peace, meaning the confidence and rest and the wisdom and control of God. John 14, 27, Jesus had this, peace I leave, I leave with you, my peace I give you. Patience, an ability to face trouble without blowing up. 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not, wait, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Kindness, which is the ability to serve others practically in a way that, which makes me vulnerable, which comes from having a deep inner security. Matthew 20, 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. This is the character of Christ in you, goodness, integrity. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Faithfulness, to be utterly reliable and true to your word. 1 Thessalonians 5.24, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. This is the character of Christ in you, gentleness, humility. Matthew 11.29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Nine, self-control. The ability to be steadfast and stable. Hebrews 4, 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. This is Christ's character produced in you. Maybe you're familiar with 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist in its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Let me tell you this. True love always is accompanied with patience and kindness. And as you think about the church, as you think about the body of Christ coming together and sharing in the fruit of the Spirit, you see love, genuine love, the fruit of the character of Jesus being lived in and through the body. First John says it this way in 4, 7 through 11, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. It's evident when you are lured by the flesh or you live by the Spirit. It's evident in community. So this is the character of Christ in you. I want you to get this. Pursuing Jesus produces love. Changing your conduct doesn't. Pursuing Jesus produces love. Life in the Spirit produces the character of Christ the character of Christ is the holiness of God. The holiness is the holistic character of God being produced in the life of a believer. And the law can never produce character change, only conduct change. This is why there's a war. And this is why he says, 
If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Can I go back to the beach illustration? You know how to stay in the right spot on the beach? You're always keeping in step with the current. Am I right? You're always walking so that you don't drift all the way down. This is what he says. Look, if you're going to live by the Spirit, keep in step. Don't don't lose it. Don't look down. Don't become so self-absorbed that you begin to just drift away. Keep in step. If we keep stepping rather than drifting, he will keep producing. Verse 26, last one. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. I think it's interesting that Paul ends this section of instructions with how to treat one another in the church because it is tempting to conform your life with Christian conduct but neglect to show Christian character and how you deal with other believers in the family of God. It's easy for us to come to church and get a list of do's and don'ts. You know what? I better do this. I better don't do this. I better act this way. I better not act this way. I better think this way. I better not think this way. I'm going to go back and I'm going to work on it and I'll come back next Sunday and tell you how I'm doing. It's easy for us to try to conform our conduct and not pursue Jesus to transform our character. And if he's transforming your character, it will be most evident in Christian community. Thanks for listening. It is our prayer that this message has helped you grow in your walk with Christ. Please subscribe to hear new sermons each week.